Ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you for joining us here tonight at the CIC. My name is Mitch Borsma, and on behalf of the CIC and the National Review Institute, I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us here. I want to be talking about doctor-prescribed suicide and its effects and whether it's ever really the answer. Um, I think we know the answer is no, but we're going to figure out more about why. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and bring uh, Catherine Lopez up from National Review. She'll be our moderator for the evening. Catherine. Thanks, Mitch. Thank you, everyone, for coming out tonight. I know there are a lot of demands on your time. Um, you might have noticed if you um, read the invitation that I've added a panelist because Sister Constance, spite from the Little Sisters of the Poor, um, I, I found walking the streets of Washington. And <laughs> no, she, she, she uh, kindly came to an event we did earlier in the day, and I thought, well, are you doing anything? <laughs> are you doing anything tonight? Um, uh, the Little Sisters of the Poor as um, many of you may know, serve the elderly poor. Um, and so this is an issue that uh, is critical to their, their mission. Um, so Co Sister Constance, thanks so much for, for being here. Yeah. Kathleen uh, Buckley-Domingo comes from the, the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, which, of course, uh, California lost the assisted suicide debate. And so, so uh, uh, Kathleen will talk a bit about lessons learned uh, during the course of that and, and the pastoral realities and the realities of dealing with us now. And Ryan Anderson from the Heritage Foundation um, has uh, made, made this something of a cause uh, for himself. Uh, thankfully, Heritage lets him do that with the resources and platform that he has there and has written um, an excellent paper um, that uh, on this topic. And Ryan, r read the title of the the. Uh, uh, let me turn it's the best title I've ever <laughs> encountered for, so, for a paper or anything. The paper is titled, Always Care, Never Kill, How Physician-Assisted Suicide Endangers the Weak, Corrupts Medicine, Compromises the Family, and Violates Human Dignity and Equality. Which that, that, that pretty much summarizes uh, um, what we want to unpack a little bit uh, tonight. So uh, with that, Sister Constance, this is so unfair because you weren't even going to be on this panel. So I'm, I'm going to start with you, of course. Um, can you start let's talk about why this is so critical? Obviously, there's an obvious issue. But why is this something that, that we all need to be paying more attention to beyond the little sisters uh, whose uh, life is dedicated to this? Well, I think, um, is this on? Okay. I think uh, probably most of you are aware that assisted suicide is, has now passed into law here in the District of Columbia, which is a real sorrow, um, a real unfortunate reality of um, you know life here as DC residents. Um, and so it, affects all of us, either today or tomorrow. And I think, um, you know, it's profoundly sad because it's putting the very vulnerable at even greater risk and making them even more vulnerable. And, you know, we have, we Little Sisters of the Poor have given our lives to caring for the needy elderly. We've become known in the past couple of years because of the HHS contraceptive mandate, but this issue is really at the very heart of our apostolate in a way that the other, um, although very important, is, you know, not as central or as much at the heart. And I, I guess I see it, um, well, I'm going to go back several, 15, six, 17 years now to a conversation 
that I had with Helen Alvarez many years ago. Many of you probably know who Helen is. You know, she's a professor now at George Mason Law School. At the time, she was um, a professor at Catholic University's Law School. Before that, she was the bishops, one of the bishops' spokespersons for pro-life issues. And myself and another little sister had the opportunity to interview her, and we thought she was like a big star to us. And um, and we, um, so we sat, it was like the day after the March for Life. And actually, at the March for Life, we had encountered Mother Agnes Donovan, who's the foundress of the Sisters of Life, and we said to Mother Agnes, we're gonna interview Helen Alvarez tomorrow. What should we ask her? And Mother Agnes thought for just a minute, not long, and she said, ask her what is the most convincing argument against assisted suicide and euthanasia. So we go in with Helen the next day, and we're like, Helen, what is the most convincing argument against assisted suicide and euthanasia? And she really blew me away, and she said, um, it's really more about us than it is about them. And she went into this long reflection about how the issue with the suffering, and this is not to diminish the suffering person at all, but that it's really a matter of our response, society's response, a family's response, a community's response, and you know, are we willing to love? And you know, um, she has developed the idea that it's only if we develop daily habits of love and self-sacrifice that when we're faced with the really extreme case of someone who wants to end their lives, will we be able to respond in a loving way rather than um, doing away with suffering by eliminating the person who is suffering. And that that was a reflection I have never forgotten and really kind of helped to change my outlook a bit because here she was a lawyer and I expected you know, a strong legal or politically oriented statement from her and she spoke as a woman as a believer in a beautiful way about developing ha um, daily habits of love and charity <coughs> toward others. And Pope, ben Pope John Paul II had written in similar vein in Evangelium Vitae and then in his encyclical on hope, which has remained a favorite of mine of Pope Benedict, he spoke in much the same way that society's response to suffering goes a long way to defining what that society is about, you know? and. I think that's very true. And so for me, this doing away with the person who suffers is just a very sad sign of the, what Pope Francis has called the throwaway culture mm -hmm. and a real devaluing of human life, human relationships, family, and community that I wish we could, um, as church, you know, do something to help turn the tide. And I think. It's really very simple to do the tide. It was mentioned in the program we were in earlier today that you know, through our witness, through relationships, through caring, we can make maybe a bigger impact on people than the political rhetoric. And I have um, experienced that in our life where we take care of the dying, the beautiful experiences that family members and other loved ones have at the bedside of a dying elderly person you know, they have life-changing experiences. And, you know, so we, I think through the way we live our lives, the way we reach out to others and the example that we give, that maybe um, 
we really can help turn the tide in a way that maybe our political rhetoric will only get us so far. So while I find this very disappointing and saddening, um, I'm, I'm also hopeful and I believe that if we take matters into our own hands as believers who reach out in love to those who need a helping hand that we can make a difference um, in this dialogue. And you know, we're trying to do that in our own work with the elderly here in DC and around the country. So I don't know if I answered your question, Catherine, but. Yeah, yeah, and and I I am I'm so convinced the uh, the reason I'm I'm so glad you can be here, sister, is is because you you are our credibility. You know, this isn't just an issue. This is this is an issue that. Um, you know, what, what happens so often in, in political debates is, you know, the two sides stick with their talking points and, and we never really show the people who who are, are making alternatives possible. And, you know, you are alternatives. Yeah, we were in the D.C. Council the day they voted. They took the vote for the assisted suicide bill. And what really struck me was that um, each member of the council had an opportunity to speak. And most of those who did speak evoked some very pathetic, sad family or friend experience with a dying person who basically didn't get the care they needed. Mm -hmm. And so it was a horrific experience and they didn't want to think of anybody else having to live through that experience. And that was their reason for voting, you know, well, I'm, you know, I would never be in favor of killing people, but, you know, the old I'm pro-life, but kind of um, rhetoric that we hear in the relative to the abortion issue. And the whole time I was sitting there, I was thinking, you're only telling half of the story. No one is standing up, because they didn't give us a chance to speak, at the, the audience or you know the, the witnesses to this. But if we need to begin to articulate the life-changing, grace-filled stories of <coughs> grace and beauty in the midst of suffering that are out there in just as great number that could you know, be just as moving as those tear-jerking stories of people's awful sufferings that went unrelieved. And, you know, so I think we as individuals, there's no reason why we can't do that in whatever milieu we live, whether it's a neighbor, a grandmother, or, you know, a parent, a child who's sick. I am struck by that, that, that um quote you mentioned from Helen is particularly apt, I think. I'm really struck by how this issue really is an examination of conscience in a way, a prod to are are we loving enough? And and what does that look like? And and there are no easy political solutions to the, 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 the challenges of love. Um, thank you. Yeah. Uh, Kathleen, do you want to talk a little bit about some of the lessons that you learned out in, in Los Angeles? Sure. So we're the losers, right? So <laughs> I'm kind of on the panel to be like the what not to do. No, I'm kidding. Oh, and I just lost my thing. Um, no, so California, um, we've been living with assisted suicide for almost a year. It went into effect last June. And we know that people are availing of the law, but we just don't know how many because built into the law is the inability to track, the inability to um, put in a medical record that someone used the suicide drugs to take their own life. Um, that's intentionally done. There's no way of overcoming that. There's no way of tracking what's happening with that. So that's a real problem for us. Um, but we do have some stories. And I'd like to just tell a story of sort of a famous 
um, assisted suicide user in California. And I think it sort of puts a little flesh on what you were saying, Sister, about um, you know, how it's really a story about us and not the, the person who's choosing death. Um, so the story's about Betsy Davis. Some of you may have heard about her, right, and read her story. Actually, People Magazine did this huge story about her. Um, Betsy Davis was a, a beautiful young woman. She had ALS. She was dying of ALS. She was very well-to-do. She was an artist, very avant-garde. Um, she lived in Ojai, California, gorgeous um, spot, you know, up on the hills overlooking the Pacific Ocean. And she decided that she wanted to take her own life before it was too late, before her ALS became so advanced that she could not um, self-administer the drugs. So she decided to throw a party. And uh, she called it, I want to get it right, a rebirth ceremony. And essentially it was, she didn't want to miss out on her own funeral. I mean, let's be honest. She threw herself a party. She invited 30 of her closest friends, right? She wanted to use up all of her money on this great big party. She said she wanted it to be fun. So she had some ground rules. Everyone was coming. They, they couldn't cry. There was no crying. There was no, like, sad talk. They had to be laughing all the time. She, she ordered tamales because that was her fav favorite food. She wanted everybody to be happy eating tamales. Um, she also ha was a very, uh, had a very privileged life. She had... Um, a lot of red carpet experiences and different things. And so she had these beautiful gowns and all this jewelry. So she invited all of her friends and she wanted them to give her a fashion show. So they had to try on her dresses and her jewels and like, I mean, it was, it was kind of weird. It was a party. Um, but her intention was to like use up all of her money before she died, right? Just throw the most lavish thing. So you, we, we read about this and I think it's important for us to ponder like what was going on here, right? So she had 30 close friends, people that she had lived with for over the years. They had been in, you know, in communication. She had done wonderful things with. They were all invited to this party knowing full well that at the end she was going to take her own life, and that they were going to be complicit in that. Right, so what does that say about the 30 people who were there? At a certain point of the party, she excused herself. She went off to this sort of altar that she had created out in the hills. Um, and she laid down and, and she took the medication and, and she died. Um, you know, if you're walking on a bridge and you see someone about to throw themselves off, whether you're a person of faith or not, I think there's something in that social compact that we have as just members of the human family that you want to stop them from doing that, right? Um, and if you don't, I think there's, there's an understanding, why didn't you stop them? You know, why, it, it's sort of an expectation, right? And yet here were 30 of her closest friends, supposedly, who attended this party knowing what she was going to do at the end. And so I think it's really important. I mean, this is now what's occurring in California. And this might be you know, a bit of an exaggerated experience. Um, most people aren't doing it this way, probably. We don't really know. Um, but the point is, it does something to our social conscience. I think it does something to us as a community of people. How do we live with that? How, do, how did these 30 people go back to their lives afterwards saying, she was my dear friend? And never once did I think to say to her, what if you not do this? What if I'm with you? You know, what if the 30 of us form some kind of committee or pact and we say we'll each take certain amount of hours and we'll be with you? I mean, there are a million things they could have done that day other than just try on her dresses and eat the tamales, you know? So I, I think that's important to understand that, you know, that this has real significant ramifications for who we are as a people, who we're willing to become. Um, another thing that we learned in California was that it's increasingly difficult for church-run organizations to have an influence in the culture that is becoming increasingly hostile to church-run organizations or to faith-based organizations, right? So how were we as the church to sort of carry this flag? And we were the only ones really in California. We joined forces with some disability rights groups um, and some other sort of secular-facing organizations, but really the church was the main standard bearer on this issue. And so a lot of what we had to do is learn to communicate and learn to say things in a way that people will understand. 
And at a certain point in the process, we were winning. We actually were winning. Um, and then they, there was some kind of dirty politics played, and at the last minute we lost. But the point is that it's not inevitable. There is a way to present this, and it's not something that's just going to happen to us. There is something that we can do, and people are still open to listening to it. The legislators, for the most part, had not thought this through when we went to visit them. We would talk about it. It's not an important issue for them. It really is not an important issue for most everyday people. It's not something that they want. Most people like all of you, like me, we're trying to put food on the table, right? We're trying to pay the mortgage or pay the rent. We're trying to get our work done at the end of the day and still have some fun. We're not thinking about, well, how, you know, I really want to kill myself at a certain point in life. Or I want that right, right? That's not something that's super important to us. So there's still a moment, I think, where we can help people to understand this is not good for us as a community. It's not good for us. Um, so we had some, some success with the secular arguments. And I'll say in California, we have, um, a, a large population, almost one in three Californians who are on Medi-Cal, which is our state-sponsored health care, right? So one in three Californians, that's a lot. That's a little over 13 million Californians. That's a lot of people. And um, right now in California, so as we were fighting this bill, we were told repeatedly there would be no state funding for assisted suicide. You don't have to worry about that. This is just for people who's just autonomy. You know, it's just for people who really, really want it. <coughs> don't worry about it. Well, the minute it was passed, of course, what happens? We get $2 million in our state budget to fund assisted suicide drugs, right? And um, no money at all in the budget to fund um, palliative care through Medi-Cal. So, of course, what does this tell people, right? Just the law itself, even if you didn't say any other words, is that it's cheapest and easiest to just kill you because we're not going to pay for any drugs that will help care for your pain. So, um, I think one thing, too, that we've learned, and, and to Sister's point, is that the people who ask for assisted suicide are not doing it because they're having physical pain for the most part, right, for the most part, overwhelmingly. People ask for assisted suicide for more existential type suffering. They're lonely, they're depressed, they're fearing uh, being a burden on somebody, right? And the wonderful news is that we know what to do with that. We've been helping people overcome existential suffering for 2,000 years, right? The Catholic Church invented hospitals. We've been by people's bedsides as they've died for 2,000 years. We know how to do this. It's tough. It takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of effort, it takes something out of us that we might not be comfortable doing, but the truth is that we know how to overcome this. We know how to create a culture where no one will want assisted suicide. It just takes some time and effort. Um, but I would encourage you to look into how to do that and, um, and really get involved because it's not an inevitability. We don't need to have people dying, especially people in our pews, especially people in our parishes. We don't need to have them wanting this. We just need to build that sense of community and show them that we're there for them, not to push them off the bridge, but instead pull them back and stand by them. Thank you. Ryan? Ryan, why is this so important? Why do people need to be paying more attention? Why? Tell us everything. <laughs> <laughs> no, this, as, as we discussed with Senator Lankford earlier today at the Heritage Foundation, this is an issue that, as Kathleen has just pointed out, we know how to we know how to fix this. This is and it's something that that hits everyone, you know, at one time or another. Um, why are people so hesitant, and why do they need to not be hesitant? So I think part of the um, the political problem is that the rhetoric that we have in the United States is particularly ill suited for a question like this. Um, so frequently, this gets framed as a matter of um, pure libertarian adult consenting adults wanting to do what consenting adults want to do. 
Um, so if you have consenting adult A who wants to kill themselves and consenting adult B who wants to provide assistance in killing themselves, why should anyone else care? Um, and so you even can see divides within like center-right politics between pro-lifers and libertarians. They don't know where they come down on this and they only view it uh, in those terms. It's either a moral issue or it's a liberty issue. Um, and I think what gets lost here is uh, how the law shapes uh, institutions and shapes cultures. Um, so at the earlier panel I mentioned that you know, Heritage, we're a liberty think tank, but we're not a libertarian think tank. Uh, we're with the founders in thinking that ordered liberty is uh, what America was meant to protect and what the Constitution protects, and that uh, in order for liberty to actually contribute to flourishing, it needs to be ordered in certain ways. And so what I tried to do in the paper, and when I speak about this, is uh, think about you know, what sort of order do we need for the institution of medicine to flourish? Um, what sort of order do we need for families to flourish? Uh, what sort of order do we need for people with disabilities and people who are um, aging and are becoming elderly, uh, for people who are on the periphery of life uh, in Pope Francis's term? Um, liberty is important, but also ordering that liberty so that medicine flourishes and families flourish and uh, people who aren't uh, kind of able-bodied, self-sufficient, autonomous adults also flourish. Um, and part of that ordering is a principle that we inherited from the Greeks. Uh, that we inherited uh, in the Hippocratic Oath. Uh, so for 2,500 years now, Western medicine has been governed by the principle, uh, first do no harm. Uh, and part of the Hippocratic Oath was that physicians were not to um, uh, prescribe a deadly drug, nor say anything to suggest that taking a deadly drug um, would be a good idea. Uh, and the idea here was that that was a necessary check to protect the integrity of medicine, uh, to protect the physician uh, against him or herself and the temptations uh, that come with treating um, ailing patients day in and day out and the psychological burden that can bring to a physician, that they needed bright line rules um, to allow medicine to be an art of healing rather than simply a technique uh, at the service of whatever desire uh, was at stake. So Leon Cass has written a lot about um, the medicinal side of this and why physicians uh, need the bright line rule against killing to protect their own uh, practice of medicine. And he mentions that all professions are governed by certain uh, practices. And um, if you're a professional, it means you profess something. And he says, you know, clergy are kind of uh, professional religious people, so they profess um, honor to God. Uh, teachers, professors, uh, intellectuals, they profess duty to the truth. Lawyers profess a commitment to justice. He says doctors profess a commitment to healing and that killing is fundamentally incompatible with healing. Uh, and so there are um, general norms, right? So no one should lie, but it's particularly important for a doctor not to lie to their patient. No one should kill. It's particularly important for a doctor not to kill. Um, no one should cheat. Particularly important for lawyers not to cheat. You can see why various professionals have particularized professional ethics. Flip this around. Look at it not from the doctor's perspective. Look at it from the patient's perspective. Um, imagine that you're a person uh, with a disability, um, that you're growing older in age, uh, you don't have good health care, you're not from a very well-to-do family, um, you've fallen, you've broken your hip, and the ambulance has dropped you off at the local emergency room. Um, how much can you trust your attending physician? Uh, how much can you tell your attending physician if you live in a jurisdiction where assisted suicide is now a standard operating procedure? Um, what does it do to the doctor-patient relationship where you know one of the options on the 
checklist is to counsel you for end-of-life care, uh, to possibly suggest that this would be an easier way out, this would be a cheaper way out. If you express any um, desire to die, will that be interpreted as a cry for help? Will that be interpreted as consenting towards uh, lethal medication? Will that be seen as a sign of depression? Uh, will you then be responded to with appropriate psychiatric care? Um, it changes uh, the relationship that physicians will have with their patients and that patients will have with their physicians. Um, the last thing I'll say about this before uh, letting Catherine ask other questions is that it'll change family dynamics. Um, if you think about uh, human life, we all enter life entirely needy and dependent on other people. Um, so the whole idea of kind of social contract thinking, it might be good for political theory purposes. It's a terrible anthropology, right? None of us come in a kind of a state of nature as a self-sufficient, autonomous, choosing adult. We all enter life as entirely helpless, needy children. And many of us will exit life in a condition similar to that, where we're dependent on other people. And all throughout, in between in life, we're going to have various times when we're dependent on people. And our society likes to tell the lie that we should be independent. It tries to deny dependency as a part of life. And the real question here is who will we be dependent on? And how will we shoulder uh, each other's burdens? So Gil Mylander, um, a really great Lutheran uh, uh, theologian, wrote an essay about 20 years ago for the journal First Things titled, I Want to Burden My Loved Ones. And the title was intentionally provocative. But he said, look, the entire point of life is burdening one another and then shouldering one another's burdens. And he said, my kids burdened my life when they were born, and I had to stay up late at night and change diapers and attend all of their concerts where they couldn't play in tune. But I did it because <laughs> I loved them, and they gave me an opportunity to love them. And he goes, and I want to burden them at the end of my life. Uh, I want them to take care of me. I want them to have the opportunity to love me. Um, and so the idea of, oh, I don't want to be a burden, therefore fill in the blank, he says that simply gets human nature wrong. Uh, and so I think a lot of these laws um, have a bad anthropology. I think John Paul II accurately diagnosed the crisis of the 20th century, 20th century as a crisis of anthropology. Uh, and what's at stake here is how will we view our parents and our grandparents? How will we view our neighbors who do have disabilities? Um, how will our children and our grandchildren die? Uh, what will become standard uh, operating procedure for people as they age and people who suffer disabilities? It's remarkable to me that we live in the most technologically advanced society with the best medical care available and only now are we seriously considering throwing away Hippocratic medicine. Right? This isn't about pain. Uh, this is about something going wrong in our culture. Uh, that even with the best medicine ever available, only now do we think doctors should assist in the killing of their patients. And it's a cultural change that's taking place. On the topic of what's going wrong with our culture, I often look to social media to explore that deeper. And earlier today when, when we um, were over at Heritage, um, we had a panelist who is very clearly disabled, and she talked about how compassion and, and choices, which is sort of campaigning, um, which isn't sort of, it's campaigning for, for legal assisted suicide across the country. She said, they, they don't consider my life worth living. So on social media, the pushback I got was, well, that's fine for you. Fine for you to believe that. What, uh, Ryan, because you go on college campuses and discuss unpopular issues, all the, or the unpopular side of unpopular issues. What, what, I'm the loser on this panel, let's be clear. <laughs> <laughs> I've lost more cases than anyone. <laughs> You're a sacrificial lamb. Um, what, what do you do when you, you need to disarm people out of that, that hostile right, right. talking point? So, I mean, I, I think there are two different 
um, uh, uh, underlying like value judgments in this general discussion. One is, you know, who is valuable, and the other is what is valuable. And so the question here is, um, on the what is valuable, because sometimes they'll run the argument, this is all about autonomy. And so what's valuable is autonomy and choice, um, which is foreign to like the Western uh, uh, intellectual tradition, because the whole idea here was that there were some choices that we could make that weren't valuable, uh, that we could make bad choices. And if you read Plato and Aristotle or Augustine and Aquinas, the entire point of life was to rightly order our desires uh, so that we um, made autonomous choices for the good. But simply because we autonomously chose something didn't make it good. And the Greek philosophers, the Roman philosophers, the Christian theologians, they all understood this. And now somehow we're thinking that the only thing that matters is that it's autonomously chosen. Um, but then the other question, and so that you could run that argument saying if consent adults want to kill each other, they should be free to do so. The other way this argument runs is that who is valuable? Uh, and the idea here is that, well, it's certain lives, uh, and this gets to Melissa's point from earlier today, are unworthy of life. Um, that you notice these laws technically say you have to have a six-month terminal diagnosis to be eligible for assisted suicide. But then they say, wait, if, um, if it's all about autonomy, why do you need to have a six-month diagnosis? Why can't anyone be eligible for this? And then they say, but wait, if it's really about suffering, uh, aren't people who are so incapacitated that they can't ask for assisted suicide being made to suffer even more? And so shouldn't we have euthanasia uh, for the demented, for those suffering severe Alzheimer's, for those who are in comas, for children who suffer congenital diseases and therefore can't consent, um, for those who are so depressed uh, that there is no effective psychiatric treatment. So in Europe, we've seen children who have been euthanized. Uh, we've seen people suffering from anorexia who have been euthanized. We've seen people suffering from gender dysphoria and who had sex change operations that then left them more unhappy than from before. They've been euthanized. And about a month ago, we saw a doctor was cleared um, by uh, the Dutch Ethics Board um, when she had family members forcibly hold down um, an elderly patient. Um, after she had drugged the elderly patient's coffee, uh, the drug didn't actually put the patient to sleep. She had the family members hold the patient down as she injected the patient with a lethal uh, uh, injection. Now, at a certain point, when speaking on a college campus, you say, is it true that all human beings have intrinsic worth, or is human worth a sliding scale so that some lives are worthy of life and some lives aren't worthy of life? And if that's the case, who's going to decide? Right? Where are you going to decide who deserves the law's legal protection? And is it the case that every autonomous adult choice is good, or are some choices uh, good and some choices bad? Uh, and are you willing to reject the entire intellectual uh, heritage of the West and being able to identify ordered liberty from disordered liberty um, in order to say that provided it's uh, autonomous, it should be uh, beneficial. Um, the last thing I'll add is none of these laws actually protect autonomy anyway. Uh, so it's largely kind of besides the point if they're arguing on autonomy. The DC law, um, if, I was, if I wanted to commit suicide in DC and have a physician assist me, this is what I would have to do. I'd go see um, a physician who I could get the name from the Compassion and Choices directory um, who, uh, without accusing anyone of malpractice, would more or less rubber stamp the fact that I have a six-month terminal illness. Uh, I would then get a second opinion from another doctor who I could find from the Compassion and Choices directory. Neither of these doctors have to have ever seen me before. Uh, they don't have to be my primary care physician. They have to have, have no history of treating me. This could be the first time they see me. 
I then need to have two witnesses, uh, one of whom can benefit from my death, mm -hmm. so one of whom can be in my will, and the other person can be their best friend. Um, those are the only legal safeguards. So I go, I make the first request. 15 days later, I have to make a second request. My two witnesses have to sign off on it. The pharmacy then sends me home with a lethal dosage of drugs. And then I have to self-ingest. But at the moment in which I ingest the drugs, there's no oversight. Uh, I'm alone in my apartment, in my nursing home, at my home. Um, whoever's the strongest person in my household is ultimately going to be controlling those drugs. If I have second thoughts and I want to back out, they may hold me down and force them down my throat. So for a bill that's predicated on protecting autonomy, there are no protections whatsoever for autonomy at the moment when the lethal decision is actually made. And physicians are held to a lower standard of competency. Uh, here it's a good faith standard of competency rather than the standard that they're held to in other areas of medicine. So they actually lowered uh, the standard for malpractice here. So it's harder to prove and to um, judge someone for having uh, intentionally misdiagnosed someone. Um, so it doesn't even protect autonomy in the first place. Um, some time ago, uh, Sister Constance, you joined Ryan and I on a, on a panel. Um, and I, I, I'll never forget you talking about in, in your, how many years have you been a little Sister of the Poor? 30. The, the, I, I thought I had the number like 27 in my head of, of, of all your 27 years as a little sister where you had never ever seen one of your elderly patients begging to die because they were in so much pain. Um, the, this a aspect, the palliative care and the pain management, um, the, what do we need to know about that? Because so much of people's reflexive, oh, we have to be for assisted suicide, comes from a beautiful place. They don't want people to be in unnecessary pain. But, but being against doctor-prescribed suicide is not the brutal uh, side of the debate. It's, it's actually the merciful. What, 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 is it, what does that look like in, in your life, um, the lives of the little sisters of the poor, and your experience? Well, I have to qualify. Um, I think in some respects, the experience of very elderly, already frail, dying people could be different from younger cancer patients. But so I can just speak from my own experience, which is with the very elderly. And in most cases, their death, we often refer to it like a candle going out. You know, they just come to a point where they s maybe. Um, They'll start eating less and sleeping more. It's a very gradual, gentle thing in most cases. Um, and, you know, they just kind of gradually peter out. And sometimes, you know, the, the way they portray deaths in hospital scenes <coughs> and soap operas is so far from reality. You know, it happens very often that it's such a gradual, um, gentle thing that we're never quite sure when the last breath was it precisely, you know, and we'll be standing over a person's bed and there's not, it's, it's not dramatic. There's very little drama. And yet where the drama is and is in those who surround the person. So typically in our houses, um, it's always been a tradition for us little sisters that when someone is dying, we take turns and stay with them 24-7 for as long as it takes. So that means even during the night, we take turns shifts, like three-hour shifts, 
to stay with them. And our staff members are welcome to come in and out of the room. The family members are welcome to come in and out. I've literally seen family members camp out in the room of an elderly person who's dying or we'll offer them an empty room, you know, a guest room where they can get some rest. But I mean, a few years ago I had a, a <coughs> resident who had like, I don't know, eight children and she had more foster children. There were so many people around her bedside and they literally had sleeping bags because someone was gonna stay in that room at all times and they just took turns. And it was a beautiful, moving experience. She had a couple of children who were estranged from the church and to some degree estranged from the rest of the family who came back into the fold by the time it was over. Um, you know, like the one son I, I remember very clearly, he would wander from her room into the chapel. This was the son who had not gone to church in years and for whom his mother had been praying for years. And it brought him home, so to speak, in more ways than one because it brought him back into the fold with his siblings, but then also to church, I think, in, in a life-changing way. She also had a granddaughter who was in nursing school who for whom it was a very moving experience. Um, so, so much richness can take place and, you know, conversions um, of, occasionally it can be a conversion of an older person, but more often what we see here in the States is conversion of family members who have fallen away from the faith. And it's just a beautiful thing. And, you know, I'm thinking, I can't remember her name, unfortunately, but in the context of the um, assisted suicide bill in DC, there was a journalist from the Washington Post who had lost her husband who wrote an op-ed piece saying that the seven months that she took care of her husband, she felt like she was the best person she had ever been because the insignificant thing, petty things faded from importance. She was drawn out of herself to be more generous and caring than she had ever been. She had beautiful moments with her husband and she was kind of saying, if he had taken an <coughs> early exit I would have been deprived of becoming a better person and I would have been deprived of all these memories that I'll have with my husband and we could still experience joy together and, and pleasurable moments despite his illness and I would have been deprived of all that. And I think this was somebody, I have no idea what her, well actually she did refer to the rosary once in her piece but she pretty much wrote it from a humanist perspective and you know, I thought those are the kind of stories that we need to get out there, that death doesn't have to be an awful um, traumatic experience for the dying person and for the loved ones. And one thing that made me really sad in, in the time frame of the Brittany Maynard case, also a Californian, um, I watched a couple of interviews that she gave, including one that was um, made public posthumously. And the words that she used were not words at all that apply to our experience with the dying. And what I mean by that is she talked about the shame of being terminally ill and possibly losing her physical abilities and faculties. She talked about meaningless suffering, useless suffering. And in all my years, um, it was probably 27 years when we were together the first time, but now it's, it'll be 30 in, in August. Um, I've never heard a dying person use the word shame in relation to themselves, and I've never heard a family member of a dying person in our house refer to anything as shameful, nor meaningless. 
you know, suffering, I think we also need to capture, recapture th the understanding of the redemptive meaning of suffering and help people to understand it and not to waste that time when they might be suffering um, because there's such power in it. Um, so it was like our vocabulary was completely different from what Brittany Maynard was saying in the videos that she gave. And I just thought this is so sad that this woman feels this way about it because there's no shame in dying. There's no shame in being dependent on others. You know, we're all dependent at one time or another. I um in in many ways, John Paul II was was a great, uh, the most famous example of someone w letting us watch him die. Mm -hmm. um, but as you were talking about bringing us to to the room as as the flame is 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 going out, um, I was rewinding in my head to a couple of weeks ago when um, Michael Novak took very seriously ill and um i many of us who were friends of his um were hearing reports from the family the family was all by the bedside and here's this great intellectual who um uh written all these books and 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 made such impactful arguments um there was no shame <laughs> in the fact that that he was coming to his last days and he even um, uh, uh, one of his daughters was describing how he would just sort of he would sleep. It was exactly what you were saying, and he'd smile and and he'd be in and out. Um, and he, my understanding is that he he kept saying to people whenever he had energy, "God <coughs> loves you, and you must love one another." That's all that matters. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I I kept thinking that of all the brilliant things he wrote, that, that's probably the most. If we remember nothing of what Michael Novak ever wrote, let's remember that. Um, and uh, and and anyway, yes, no no shame. This is this is who we are. Um, uh, Kathleen, you mentioned palliative care before. What now that it's a reality, assisted suicide is a reality in California. What do you what are you able to show people and tell people in terms of alternatives, knowing you don't have the funding and obviously it, it doesn't have the name recognition that assisted suicide does, um, where, where's the church able to lead people, right. point people and lead people? Yeah, so actually we're working on a really exciting initiative in California right now that um, will be unveiled in a couple of months, but it's, it's something I've been working on for about a year and a half. Um, all of the bishops of California and all of our Catholic hospital systems in California have gotten together and decided they're going to do something really specific and really exciting about this issue, and they're making commitments to people in the state to say, we will do these things for you. Um, both health care-wise and pastorally. Um, every bishop in California has committed to doing these things in parishes, ministerially, connecting health care and specifically palliative care with pastoral care. So it's uniting all those pieces together. It's saying we're part of a community, and this is what the community looks like. I love that Gilbert Mylander piece. It's so awesome because it's true. We need to burden each other with these things. We need to teach people what suffering can really do, what it looks like, what it's about, what the redemptive piece is. Um, and palliative care, I think, feeds right into that. So palliative care is meant to um, take care of people's suffering, but it also has different components. It includes social workers, it includes chaplains, it helps families um, when people are, are um, under the guidance of a pa palliative care team. Families and caretakers are also getting the support that they need, and that's something really beautiful. So our Catholic hospitals in California are committed to palliative care, um, committed to helping people find that, and, and um, also helping people advocate for that so that they know what good care looks like and they know how to get it, whether they're 
have the ability to uh, be treated in a Catholic hospital or not, what we can do with that. And so also we're partnering with some um, Catholic hospice systems as well, so that we can make sure that people really do have access to some good quality care when they need it. Um, I want to um, open this up. I know people probably have questions, um, some questions uh, from the audience, if uh, anyone wants to get in on the conversation here. Or I can keep asking questions, too. Just in terms of our experience, I don't think so. So palliative care definitely is more cost-saving than people making unnecessary trips to the ICU at the end of life, right? Um, which is often what happens. So what we know is that the vast majority of people want to die at home surrounded by family. They don't want to die in the ICU. Um, they don't want to die kind of hooked up and um, in a very sterile environment with the beeping and, and all the things that hospitals entail. So um, palliative care allows people to do that. So it really does extend that real comfort level of care, that real personal care. It invites families to be a part of that. It invites community be a, to be a part of that. So I think what happens is that people don't have that urge to want to avail of doctor-assisted suicide. Instead, they see this community surrounding them, and they're not alone, and they're not dying in pain. They're, and, and the suffering, because we, we're all going to suffer, right? There's, that's a part of life. But the suffering can be managed, and it can be um, actually aided by families coming in and helping out and saying, it's okay, I'm here with you, all that, that burdening that we're meant to do. That's actually part of sort of good quality palliative care. So um, the cost issue, I think, is, is something um, we just need to say it in a nice way. We need to say that um, it's actually something that's beneficial for a family. So our healthcare system is not great. I mean, we, we all have to, you know, understand that there's, there's a lot of brokenness. The fear that people have and the reason that they're looking for assisted suicide as a solution is real. People are really afraid. Um, people don't die well. We have a lot of stories of people not dying well. So we have to own that. And I think palliative care can be the answer. And the fact that it is also um, less costly, I think, is just a benefit. But, it, but that's not what we lead with, right? So I think that's the difference. It, it, this morning, we had a panelist um, who ended up being a sick, so she typed up her remarks, and we read them at the panel, but she's with um, uh, the National Council of Independent Living, which is a group that advocates on behalf of uh, people with disabilities, and she pointed out that the Journal of Palliative Care has shown that since Oregon passed their assisted suicide law, um, the funding and the options for palliative medicine have actually declined in Oregon. Uh, so what it tends to be is that um, assisted suicide crowds out uh, palliative care. Um, not that palliative care is a stepping stone to assisted suicide. It's actually the reverse, that uh, assisted suicide um, diminishes resources going towards palliative care. I think we also have to keep in mind that when all is said and done, it comes down to the, um, it can come down to the intention and the conscience of either the sick person or their responsible party or those caring. And I'll give you a very concrete example. Um, and this is maybe difficult because only God knows what's in the heart, right? But somebody can be terminally ill with um, a lot of pain. Well, the church has always taught that this is nothing new, that it's acceptable, it's morally acceptable to administer pain medication that will have as a second effect it's the principle of double effect. If, if your first intention is to relieve pain, morphine can shorten the lifespan because it suppresses respirations. This is the clearest example. That is morally acceptable if your intention 
is to relieve pain and give comfort and the life is shortened that is morally acceptable the person is terminally ill your intention is not to kill the person and in a way in most cases one will never know you know um did we shorten this person's life by a day or by hours because we increased the dose of morphine only god knows me as the caregiver or the family member did we increase that morphine to end it quicker and get rid of her or do we you know increase the dose of morphine truly to comfort and relieve suffering only god knows in the end but god knows in the end <laughs> you know so cuz sometimes we you could have a situation where people could question either what's being done or what's not being done and say well that's right or that's wrong but it does come down to prudential judgments in each individual situation i mean i just lost my mother in november my three siblings and myself we had to make the decision to take her off a ventilator we made that decision after 3 weeks in icu and pretty much every option had been exhausted and we certainly did not take my mother off the vent because we wanted her dead you know we wanted to get rid of her but you know every good faith attempt to improve the situation had been made you know someone could stand back in judgment and say oh we killed her you know but i knew in my heart as my siblings knew that in that case we were doing the right thing and um you know you'll see in our homes taking care of our residents you know some morphine is not bad in and of itself i think it gets a bad name like whenever somebody's going to be given morphine it's to kill them no morphine in appropriate doses is to relieve pain and increase comfort you know and so sometimes along the way it could shorten the life by hours or a day or two but that's not morally wrong if that wasn't my intention i hope that makes sense cuz it's a key issue in the whole end of life picture thank you thank you i was i was thinking i i was going to bring that up um new yorkers um know stephen mcdonald really well um he was a new york city police officer who was shot 30 years ago and um paralyzed um from from the from the neck down and uh he had just recently been married he was new on the police force his wife was pregnant um and w- you know seemingly had had his whole life ahead of him and um and uh people were really struck by the story he he died um right after christmas this year um had a heart attack um during during those 30 years he became this popular public speaker um going around talking about forgiveness um and being the witness of himself so he was in a wheelchair you could hear him gasping for breath when he spoke um he when um when his son was born he was still in the hospital and um his wife read a statement on their behalf his behalf forgiving the young man who had shot him and done this to him um so a beacon of of mercy an icon of 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 mercy and forgiveness and um who Christians are called to be, right? Um he um he wrote about how he 
would have been happy to have died at that point because he was in so much pain. And and it, out of this the selflessness, too, like he didn't want his wife to have to live with this for the rest of her life. Mercifully, he had the support system. His mother and his wife would never have let him um, let him go. But if it was up to him um, and this was legal, um, the, it, he he even wrote at one point and, and spoke spoke about it as well, how even after he was home, he felt so guilty um, that his wife, his life was was changed um, by by this um, disability that he had, and so he he wanted to kill himself, and so uh, sort of beside herself, um, his wife called Cardinal O'Connor in New York, who had become a family friend. Cardinal O'Connor, she uh, Stephen said, was at their home in, in Long Island within an hour um, and spent the day with them to counsel both of them. Um, she she said, he he wants to kill himself. I don't know what to do. Um, and and I just when I look at his story, New Yorkers especially know how he went around all the time, sort of um, uh, tirelessly talking about what forgiveness is and why you would forgive someone who did this to you, right? Um, and he wouldn't have existed, you know, if we, if, if we uh, uh, there's a very possible he, he, he would have ended his life if he had been given the choice and if he didn't have the support system that he did. So I often, especially since we're at a, a Catholic place tonight, I, I'm, I'm thinking of him as like the patron saint of this issue. You know, um, here's, here's, here's someone who can tell a story um, that, that had a, a beautiful, beautiful ending. Um, and, uh, and it, it is the stories of real people who did not leave, live shameful lives because, because they were disabled in one way or another, um, that, that people need to see, because otherwise I feel like we're talking about people here, us talking about, people always hear Catholics talk about redemptive suffering, right? And, you know, if, if you're, first of all, if you're in a political context, I don't know that that works at all, you know, Catholics telling people they need to suffer more, you know, um, but when we start actually unpacking this issue you know we're adding misery to already miserable situations by by um by embracing assisted suicide and by by taking away palliative care options and not being really realistic about what life is and i i love your paper ryan um so much because it, it it is the big picture you're very good at doing you know going through all the arguments and going through all the layers. Um, you've done that on other issues, uh, uh, too. Um, and, and it is an opportunity. I almost see this, 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 this debate, um, this is a debate as this huge opportunity to talk about all these anthropological kind of issues, right. Um, that are, that are bad for politics. It's hard to talk about in politics, but, but actually maybe this is a way in to something bigger. Yeah. I mean, so um, I think this can help us um, recover a sounder understanding of the human person. I also think this has the potential not to be turned into a uh, partisan issue. Um, and so we haven't mentioned this yet, but um, Victoria Kennedy, uh, the widow of uh, Senator Ted Kennedy, was like the lead spokesperson against assisted suicide in Massachusetts um, back in 2012. Assisted suicide was on the ballot in Massachusetts. And the citizens there voted against it. Um, and this has, up until now, largely been a bipartisan issue. Uh, people on the left side of the political spectrum say, we care about poor people. Uh, we care about people with disabilities. We care about people who are aged. We care about people who don't have good health care. 
we don't want them to be pressured into killing themselves. Uh, people on the right side of the spectrum frequently say those same things. They also might have like pro-life arguments. Um, but they've been able to work together uh, on this. And so I, was, um, I have a quote from Kennedy. Um, she had written an op-ed in, um, I can't remember if it was the Boston Globe or whatever the local. Um, it was a different paper. I figured, but, uh, the Cape Cod Times. Cape Cod Times. Um, and what she says is, uh, she says, quote, when my husband was first diagnosed with cancer, he was told that he had only two to four months to live, that he'd never go back to the US Senate, that he should get his fares in order, kiss his wife, love his family, and get ready to die. But that prognosis was wrong. Teddy lived 15 more productive months. Because the first dire prediction of life expectancy was wrong, I have 15 months of cherished memories. Memories of family dinners and song fests with our children and grandchildren. Memories of laughter and, yes, tears. Memories of life that neither I nor my husband would have traded for anything in the world. When the end of life finally did come, natural death with dignity, my husband was home, attended by his doctor, surrounded by family and our priest. And then she says, um, many people wish for a good death, surrounded by loved ones, perhaps with a doctor or clergyman at their bedside. But with assisted suicide, what you get instead is a prescription for up to 100 capsules, dispensed by a pharmacist, taken without medical supervision, followed by death, perhaps alone. That seems harsh and extreme to me, end quote. Uh, Ted Kennedy is not kind of known for being some conservative Republican, uh, imposing his morality on other people. Um, she then concluded the op-ed uh, by saying, my late husband, Senator Edward Kennedy, called quality affordable health care for all the cause of his life. Physician-assisted suicide turns his vision of health care for all on its head by asking us to endorse patient suicide, not patient care, as our public policy for dealing with pain and the financial burdens of care at the end of life. We're better than that. We should expand palliative care, pain management, nursing care, and hospice, not trade the dignity, of, uh, not trade the dignity and life of a human being for the bottom line. Uh, so I actually think on this issue, there's a huge potential uh, for bipartisan kind of cross the aisle um, agreement precisely to uncover some of those deeper anthropological truths. I mean, I think what Victoria Kennedy is getting at here is how do we care for the least of these? Um, do we say to those on the periphery, you're better off dead and here are 100 capsules and it's cheaper to pay for your suicide than your chemo or your hospice or your palliative care? Or do we say quality affordable health care is something we still need to be working on to provide uh, quality care to everyone, uh, patient care, not uh, patient killing? Uh, so I think this issue has that potential. It also has the potential to become a partisan issue mm -hmm. um, and to be viewed by both the right and the left as um, uh, uh, kind of, you think about it, social liberalism and economic uh, liberty, right? So the bo both parties have their tendency to say consenting adults should do whatever they want to do. Republicans on economic issues, uh, Democrats on social issues. And so it also has the potential to be bipartisan in a bad way right. uh, in which they both go to kind of a, um, a lower form of understanding of liberty. Cardinal O'Malley has said that that changed the debate in, in Massachusetts entirely yeah. mm -hmm. once she wrote that op-ed because because he obviously was so well-known, household name, um, and it, it really it it gave you visuals that you couldn't have otherwise had. Yeah. Just as, as we've been speaking the last few minutes, um, a word of scripture keeps going through my head, and it's see how they loved one another. And, you know, I think... This is aside from the political side of things, but we, as as a believing community, um, I think the m it's a moment where the best way <coughs> we can speak to the people of our time is through our witness 
and through our loving witness and through the witness of charity that we give. Um, and so in this context, maybe um, the best way we can convince the skeptics that assisted suicide and euthanasia are not the answer is through our example of love and the way we encircle um, those who suffer with care and support until the very end. And maybe that example will speak <coughs> in ways that our words can't or that people can't understand. Um, I don't know. You know, it was St. Francis who said, um, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary use words. And Pope Paul VI said at one point, uh, in our age, um, people need witnesses more than preachers or teachers. And it was, you know, only by the strength of the witness that others will believe what we try to teach. And I, I just think that aging and dying has become so medicalized in our society, but it need not be that. And even children can have a place. And I, I hesitate a little bit to mention this person, but I'm going to mention her. I don't know what her spirituality is, but I have seen a couple of videos of Celine Dion talking about her husband's final illness. And I think she's a little out there spiritually, so I say this a little bit hesitatingly, but <laughs> the way she talked about including her children, her young children, like she has a teenage boy and then like five-year-old twins, and they witnessed her doing her husband's um, tube feeding because he couldn't eat anymore. And then the way she talked about it, it was like, okay, it's time for daddy to eat, and the kids were there, and she would let them hold the syringe, and they were part of the scene. And that, you know, aside from anything else, I don't know. I don't know where she is belief-wise, but just the way she described the way her small children were incorporated into her husband's care in his final days was b a beautiful witness to me of how it could be for all in all families. Um, you know, couldn't we enable that to be the case? Or, you know, a neighbor that they will be surrounded. A couple of weeks ago, I think it was in conjunction with the March for Life, there was a report on CBS um, about an 89-year-old woman and a 30-something-year-old young man, single young man. I don't know if anybody else saw this, but they started out neighbors in an apartment a complex next door neighbors, and they started spending more and more time together and growing closer and closer, like a grandmother-grandson relationship. And toward the end, she was diagnosed with leukemia. He actually gave up his apartment, moved into her apartment, and took care of her till the end. She just died a couple weeks ago. But, I mean, everybody can't do that maybe, but why can't we all do a little more than what we might be doing in order to <coughs> care for someone and give a witness to, to our contemporary society of the worth of the human person and what can be done, you know, if we have... Where there's a will, there's a way, if we have love. I know it sounds like it should be a song, a gimmicky song or something, but <laughs> um, you know, it's true. Well, I think I think we have to let Sister Constance have the last word there, which is never a bad thing. So thank you, everyone, for coming out tonight. Thank you to the panelists for, for being here. Thank you to the Catholic Information Center and the National Review Institute for, for co-hosting this. Uh, have a good night. <laughs>